Happy Sunday, and thank you for joining me today. This was the front page of the New York Times. Quote, a violent quake kills hundreds in Haiti amid a leadership void. The St. Louis Dispatch Post out of Missouri read, quote, high casualties feared as 7.2 magnitude earthquake strikes near Haiti. The Post and Courier out of South Carolina read 7.2 magnitude earthquake hits Haiti. And uh, the Houston Chronicle today read, quote, strong earthquake brings Haiti to its knees, emergency declared as towns destroyed and hospitals crowded. The death toll as of right now um, has neared 1,300. If you've been following the news out of Haiti recently, it has not been good. Their president was recently assassinated while trying to hang on to power. The first lady was also shot but transferred to Miami for immediate medical attention. She is now doing better. But when the funeral was held for her husband, shots were fired at the funeral. The nation is now in the process of restoring governmental leadership. Haiti is also, like every other country around the globe, uh, grappling with the coronavirus pandemic and also the climate crisis. While still recovering from this earthquake, they have to prepare for now tropical storm Grace, which is expected to hit tomorrow. But it has already been bearing down on the Caribbean, uh, Dominican Republic, and also the Republic of Haiti as of today. Last year in August, um, they, they were hit by a Category 4 hurricane named Laura that left 20 people dead and knocked out power for millions of residents. Before that, in October of 2016, Hurricane Matthew hit the nation as a Category 5, causing billions of dollars in, in destruction and killed over 500 people while displacing thousands because of eroded homes and buildings. Four years before that, it was Hurricane Sandy as a Category 2 that left 51 people dead and approximately 200,000 people became homeless after days of constant rain. In October of 2010, the nation got the cholera epidemic, um, which led to over 820,000 cases and nearly 10,000 deaths. Reportedly, it was one of the worst cholera outbreaks in recent history. But in January of that year, January of 2010, uh, something tremendously devastating transpired. Haiti was hit by a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. Who is here to help us already? We can't do nothing. Now four days into the disaster, a cruel disconnect is emerging between scenes like this, of food arriving by the plane load, and what people are not seeing in hard-hit neighborhoods just a few miles away. He needs food. Yeah. Shock and grief are now exploding into anger. Spontaneous riots erupted on the streets today. Government buildings burned and there was even gunfire. Officials tonight are warning food convoys to increase their security as hunger and thirst take a mounting toll. Yeah, most of them, they go into the shops and steal food. They bring it here and they hustle it. They sell that black market. The U.S. and United Nations are working to set up food and water distribution sites, but there are still many challenges. One U.N. official said the scene here is worse than the aftermath of the 2004 Indonesian earthquake because there were at least local officials there to coordinate with. Here, the government is literally and figuratively in shambles. Only half of Port-au-Prince's police force is on the street. The Haitian people know a little something about resiliency. They knew it before the earthquake, and they certainly know it now, as they have re-established a sense of community now beneath tents instead of in their homes, now destroyed. But they still need water, food, and even medical care. This woman has a hurt leg. She can't walk, but she hasn't received any care. There were also more aftershocks today. <laughs> Sending these jittery residents who were tapping a source of water, briefly scrambling. Also today, bulldozers began attacking the massive debris, even when they couldn't tell if anyone was in it. 
And adding to the general weariness here are the dead left on the streets or decomposing in the ruins of their homes. Two stories collapsed. There are several people inside, under it. You can smell them. Yes. Those bodies are of this woman's four children. She wants to bury her children. Yes. But amid the death, life here continues to renew itself. We found this woman nursing her new son, born last Wednesday in this makeshift encampment, the day after the earthquake. This is the father. He and his family together, starting from scratch. By coming together in this way, these two leaders send an unmistakable message to the people of Haiti and to the people of the world. In these difficult hours, America stands united. We stand united with the people of Haiti, who have shown such incredible resilience, and we will help them to recover and to rebuild. That was an NBC News special report at the time about the catastrophic situation in Haiti after that earthquake. The United Nations described it at the time as a historic and also one of the worst disaster disasters they've ever responded to. At the end of that news clip, you heard President Obama there reference two leaders, and those two people were former President Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, who requested that Americans send money to help the Haitian people to recover from this earthquake. I mean, this was just completely devastating. Ultimately, 300,000 people were killed and 1.5 million homes were completely obliterated. And the response was just botched. Right after the earthquake, hopes were quite high in regard to foreign assistance. About $13.3 billion in promised donations and humanitarian aid was raised. Foreign governments and global aid groups all came together to help the people of Haiti. Many discussed improving the nation's longtime infrastructural issues. Uh, but in the middle of those talks and recovery, just one week later, bam, a second earthquake, a second earthquake rattles the nation of Haiti. This one was a 6.1 magnitude, and after that, as I previously mentioned, they had to deal with a cholera outbreak. According to the Washington Post, the disease was most likely brought into the country by infected peacekeepers from the United Nations who were supposed to help stabilize the region. Years later, the United Nations finally did confess, yeah, that they played a significant role in the epidemic in Haiti and that they also revealed that they were not going to accept any legal or financial responsibility for it, given treaties and also diplomatic immunity. Philip Alston, a New York University law professor, just excoriated them for that egregious stance, saying this, quote, would not have happened if it weren't for the United Nations. This essentially this outbreak would not have broken out if the United Nations essentially, I guess, if the peacekeeping group did not come there. He called their Haiti cholera, cholera policy, quote, morally unconscionable, legally indefensible and politically self-defeating. It is also entirely unnecessary. Mr. Alston also continues by writing that the United Nations' constant denial and refusal to make reparations to victims, quote, upholds a double standard according to which the UN insists that member states respect human rights while rejecting any such responsibility for itself. It protects high highly combustible feel for those who claim that the UN peacekeeping operations trample on the rights of those being protected, and it undermines both the UN's overall credibility and the integrity of the office of the Secretary General. Mr. Alston also uh, didn't just criticize the Department of Peacekeeping Operations for this outbreak in Haiti. He expanded that blame to the entire United Nations as an organization overall for its role in this. Quote, as the magnitude of the disaster became known, key international officials carefully avoided acknowledging that the outbreak had resulted from discharges from the camp. 
On top of that, he also went on to reserve a particular part of his infuriation for the Office of Legal Affairs, saying that their interpretations have trumped the rule of law. In conclusion, uh, Alston said that the UN's cholera eradication program had failed and infections were rising in Haiti, not declining. So this was a damning revelation and a domestic crisis for the Haitian government and its citizens. And after that 2010 earthquake, and as they're simultaneously having to deal with this cholera outbreak in Haiti, uh, foreign assistance and humanitarian aid did come in significant proportions. But what happened to all that money that was raised, right? I mean, where'd that go? Well, some was lost to corruption and embezzlement. In fact, several of Haiti's high-ranking leaders and government were suspected of misappropriating some of those funds. A global commission supported by the United States with the assistance of former President Bill Clinton um, was supposed to lead the way in terms of rebuilding organizing efforts uh, by, by, foreign govern by foreign governments and also aiding groups and businesses. But its mandate unfortunately expired after 18 months, which led to many Haitians saying that, the, saying that Bill Clinton and the commission overpromised and they underprepared. They also underperformed, excuse me. Two years after the, earth, the earthquake in Haiti, after that 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti, half a million Haitians were homeless and still living under tarps. Three years later, in 2015, the situation on the ground barely improved. Haitian human rights activist Nixon Bamba wrote in an account for the Washington Post, quote, Poverty has worsened all the capital, all around the capital. More beggars on the streets, an increase in teen preg pregnancy, and more people turning to sex work. In truth, a great deal of the redevelopment has gone to help the rich and powerful, not the impoverished and displaced people who need it the most. End quote. In October of 2018, a 5.9 magnitude earthquake hit northern Haiti and killed 15 people, including wounding 300 others. Now we are here in the year of 2021, with a 7.2 magnitude earthquake hitting the nation of Haiti. Haitians are still, to this day, recovering from the magnitude earthquake, from the 7.0 magnitude earthquake in 2010. Don Sweeney at the Miami Herald did an excellent job putting together uh, some personal experiences of people in Haiti. Uh, they told different news outlets, and he put this... He put this together. He put their personal experiences from experiencing this earthquake together. Wichdale Augustin told the New York Times, quote, We can hear people screaming under the rubble. People are running back and forth to the hospital. Ralph Simon, a, state, a radio station owner, told the Washington Post, quote, The impact of this is huge. I was still in my bed with my children and my wife. My wife had a heart attack and I had to save her life. There's damage to houses. People are crying. 32-year-old Mackison Peer had just returned home to Jerome, to Jerome on Friday, USA Today reported. He was in the shower Saturday morning when the earthquake struck. Another resident recounted, quote, I woke up and didn't have time to put my shoes on. She said, we lived the 2010 earthquake and all I could do was run. I later remembered my two kids and my mother were still inside. My neighbor went in and told them to get out. We ran to the street. Sephora Pierre-Louis of Port-au-Prince told Reuters, quote, In my neighborhood, I heard people screaming. They were flying outside. At least they know how to get out. At least they know to go outside. In 2010, they didn't know what to do. People are still outside in the streets, end quote. 
Gene Wickens Moore, a spokesperson with the World Vision Haiti and Port of Prince, told CNN, quote, In the beginning, I didn't think of an earthquake. I felt a shake as it lasted more than five to ten seconds. I realized it was an earthquake. Both sides of the house was shaking. I wasn't panicked. I realized it would take seconds to get out of the house, and it was best to just let it pass. End quote. The Puerto Rico Seismic Network said that this earthquake was so strong that even hours after it happened, seismic signals were still showing up on their screens. That's how bad it was. That's how significant the severity of this damage was. Florida is one of the closest states to Haiti, and there is a large Haitian community in that state. Uh, the Miami Herald interviewed some Haitian-American residents, and these were their reactions. Literally, the news woke me up out of my sleep. All of a sudden, around six something, early in the morning, my WhatsApp just started ringing continuously and messages um, were popping up with videos and, and voice notes of people experiencing this chaos. Life, because a lot of people that were affected by this earthquake back in 2010, really didn't have the means to provide for themselves and for the country to be hit for another earthquake again. It, it is very unfortunate. So I hope all of the people that are, that are down there are able to come through this and then to know that, you know, us and outside of Haiti, we are with you, our heart is with you. And if there's anything that we can do to help to provide some type of aid, you know, we are here at your disposal. Oh my God, it's heartbroken. I was on the plane coming to Florida for a special trip, but they keep calling me, calling me. I don't know what's going on, but finally pick up the phone. And they was like, oh my God, where you came from is destroyed. My church, Our Lady of Immaculate Conception, is destroyed with a lot of young kids who's, who's going to have uh, baptized. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, it's too much for Haiti. I don't think we're going to take it anymore. Two years we've been to so many things. We just lost our president. Now is a health good. I'm like, enough is enough. I feel like I have no tears in my eyes anymore. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Just got word that Haiti has been hit with another earthquake in the midst of a pandemic, uh, in the midst of a variant, uh, the Delta variant of the pandemic, the coronavirus. Haiti has dealt another, with another blow. Uh, I know that when the first one hit in 2010, uh, my reaction was, uh, yo, we, we're resilient. We're going to bounce back from this. I think we're speechless at this point. The word resilient, I don't know if we have any more resiliency left. Each time we wake up in the morning, we pray that everything is okay in Haiti. And today everything wasn't okay. I just don't know how much more this small country can take. Just completely devastating and heartbreaking and just detrimental right now. As I said um, at the top, as I said, on, on top of this earthquake, the nation does have other domestic issues right now. Coronavirus cases have skyrocketed in this nation. Dr. Ronald LaRoche uh, said, quote, uh, the, the figures are wrong. We must have a higher contagion rate than the whole world, pointing to packed public transportation and crowded living conditions in the impoverished nation. Uh, Dr. LaRoche is the director of Haiti's DASH network of nonprofit uh, private clinics uh, that provides comprehensive medical services to about 40,000 patients for, 10, for $10 a month. Last week, the nation got some good news um, as the very first shipment of coronavirus vaccines finally arrived. Haiti is one of the last nations on earth to receive it. 
But in terms of getting people actually vaccinated, that is going to be a huge obstacle, not just because they had a 7.2 magnitude earthquake, which has already killed more than 1,000 people. The death toll expected to continue to rise, and now they're expected to be hit by Tropical Storm Grace, which is going to make landfall tomorrow. That, that's not only a reason why getting vaccinated is a obstacle, an obstacle, major obstacle for Haiti right now, but also because according to a new survey by UNICEF and the University of Haiti, only 22% of adults are open to getting it. Others don't view the virus as a big threat or they saw some stuff on the side effects of the vaccine online. According to NPR, just over the past two years, Haiti has seen a significant surge in gang violence, another domestic issue. Criminal organizations have taken over entire neighborhoods of Port-au-Prince. After forcing out the police, gang members are free to loot, extort, kidnap, and at times even kill without being punished or legally held accountable, such as being arrested. Furthermore, many Haitians are struggling with poverty, which has risen during the pandemic. Reportedly, 60% of the population lives on less than $2 a day. In 2019, Haiti's environmental minister, Joseph Juth, uh, compared the climate emergency to a violent action and urged the international community for help in combating the climate crisis in the nation of Haiti, saying, quote, climate change is a very big terror in Haiti. It's very hard for us to deal with climate change. Haiti is not responsible for what's going on with climate change, but we are suffering from it. We want better treatment from the international community. In Haiti, all the indicators are red. We have many projects, but as you know, the Caribbean community doesn't have enough funding to build projects, end quote. Patrice Sinus, a young Haitian living in Quebec, said access to funding has been constant, um, has been essentially just not really working out well. It has been a constant and what feels like perpetual problem for Haiti right now. She said substantive action on the climate crisis is going to require strong policies, research, innovative programs, financial support, as well as technological. I mean, that's how you're going to get the job done. But she said because of lack of funding, because of lack of huge focus on this issue and help from the international community, I mean, Haiti really hasn't had luck on this. Scientists have been saying that extreme weather events like hurricanes, floods, and droughts will become worse as the planet warms. And islands, island nations like Haiti are expected to be one of the most hardest hit and impacted by these and other effects from the climate crisis. One of those being shoreline erosion. Haiti did have a president, um, if you are wondering. They did have a president named uh, Jovenel Moussi in office recently. Uh, his term ended in February of this year, but he hanged on to power. At the time of his assassination last month in his private residence, he reportedly pleaded with his security to come save his life. As the investigation goes on, we keep learning more disturbing revelations. For instance, two weeks ago, a former Haitian Supreme Court judge, Justice, was named a suspect in the murder of the president's death. The investigation into the president's assassination has been complicated by threats and also resignations. Just this Friday, a judge resigned less than two days after his clerk was killed. In a letter, Judge Matthew Chalanti um said he resigned for personal reasons. His clerk, Ernst LaFortune, and um, 
on Wednesday, uh, he and the judge were uh, having what's being described as a lively discussion. The Wall Street Journal reported, quote, Hours later, Mr. LaFortune was dropped off by unidentified people at a hospital with broken arms and a gash in his throat said another legal work legal clerk working with him at the hospital mr lafortune was pronounced dead leaving behind a wife and at least two children the clerk said end quote so the nation of haiti is in deep domestic turmoil right now amid all the crisis they are facing a 7.2 magnitude earthquake just hit killing thousands of its citizens while they're still recovering from the one that hit in 2010 if you like to donate to money to agencies and funds, make sure to avoid unfamiliar or sketchy sites. According to the Miami Herald, in 20,000, excuse me, in 2010, several domains with the words Haiti and relief were already taken. Also, I know it's cruel to do, but many people in times like these like to exploit such disasters to make extra cash. So make sure you are donating to reliable, legitimate, and credible organizations and funds. It is a very dark and grim night um, in Haiti as they are recovering from this earthquake and preparing for Tropical Storm Grace that is expected to make landfall tomorrow. Please keep them in your prayers um, and hope for the best during this time. Much more ahead tonight. Stay with us. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Lift your hand. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. Words about friendship, about sport, about belief, about fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are, how are you? Thank you. And I love you. Welcome back. The situation in hospitals right now and across the country are dire as many are at full capacity and ICUs are just being overcrowded with many hospitals now having to turn away patients who are even suffering from heart attacks and strokes. This was a report tonight from NBC News. Tonight, the COVID crisis overwhelming hospitals out west. In Utah, the state's largest health care system is struggling to keep up. Stretched thin, treating mostly unvaccinated patients. So we're full completely cool. Um, this is not a place that we want to be. And nationwide, pediatric cases are growing at an alarming rate too. Nearly 94,000 new infections in a week, roughly a 400% increase in a month as more kids head back to school. Recent outbreaks in Georgia now forcing several counties to suspend in-person learning. Teachers can't plan where they have to teach the face-to-face -face students. They also have to teach the kids who are quarantined, so they're, they're doing double duty. And the debate over vaccine mandates boiling over. In Kentucky, protests over vaccine requirements for health care workers. In Los Angeles, one person was stabbed during a clash outside City Hall between pro and anti-vaccination demonstrators. And in New York City, protesters blocking roads outside the mayor's residence a day before the city becomes the first to require proof of vaccination at indoor restaurants, entertainment venues and gyms. It's about saving human life. 
It's not about money in the short term. The rule applies to both customers and workers who can show their vaccination status through an app or vaccine card. If you're unvaccinated, unfortunately, you will not be able to participate in many things. That's the point we're trying to get across. But few details have been shared on how to follow the new mandate and penalties for noncompliance. Restaurant owners hit hard by the pandemic say it's adding more to their plate. The hospitality industry consistently becomes the scapegoat for everything COVID. And Kathy joins us now. Kathy, New York isn't the only city asking for proof of vaccination before entering indoor establishments. Peter, that's right. The list is growing. The mandate goes into effect tomorrow in New Orleans. Later this week in San Francisco, Los Angeles is also considering a similar plan. That was, again, reporting from NBC News. Uh, these were some headlines across the country today. Quote, USC's record number of children in hospital with COVID-19. Also, the United States could soon hit more than 200,000 new coronavirus cases per day, NIH director warns. This is starting to look really ominous in the South, expert says, as U.S. is among nations with the highest rate of new coronavirus cases. End quote. So we are not in a good spot right now as a nation. We are in a terrible spot. Um, another headline is this one from The Guardian. Quote, U.S. could see 200,000 COVID cases a day again. Unvaccinated are sitting ducks. End quote. We have crossed that 200,000 cases. Uh, we have crossed that terrifying and horrible threshold before we crossed it we crossed it last year and um we never thought we i mean many people didn't think we would get there again but it does appear that we are going to get there again because of the delta variant and its spread among large proportions of the country that are unvaccinated and the best thing to do right now to express gratitude and appreciation to the healthcare system, as I've been saying, is to get vaccinated. Um, this is a report from CNN just a couple of weeks ago, actually last month, about a woman who was essentially sort of standing back on the fence about getting vaccinated, sort of waiting to see how everyone else would react to it. Uh, but then she decided to get vaccinated after ending up in the emergency room. It was horrifying. I've never in my life felt like I was going to die until that day. This mother of eight from Lake Butler, Florida is opening up about how close she came to dying from COVID-19. Janine Starling had chosen not to get the vaccine. Her husband wasn't vaccinated either or their children. What was it about the vaccine that concerned you that made you not want to get it? Just that it had not been around long. And honestly, I think I listened. I think I, I think I let people influence me, like saying, oh, you know, that this is the government just trying to fill our bodies with stuff. And, you know, and, you know, they're trying to push the shot on us. But earlier this month, Janine's husband got COVID. Then it spread to Janine and their four kids living at home, including their youngest, who is just six. Soon, Janine was struggling to breathe, so they rushed her to the hospital. I remember being very desperate, grabbing the mask and and then feeling, you know, the oxygen come in. Janine spent nine days in the hospital, six of them in the ICU. In those moments when you can't breathe like that, even with all the oxygen they were giving me, it feels like you have a, a Ziploc bag over your head and somebody's holding it. And... Um, I mean, I had oxygen on, I was still feeling that way. 
At 43, did you ever think that you would get that sick from COVID? Mm-mm. 100%. I had had conversations with my husband and said, we probably already had it. Just didn't even know it. And honestly, he agreed that we had probably already had it. And there have been times I'd been sick and I was like, oh, it's probably COVID. No big deal. No big deal? Not exactly. Janine's oxygen had dropped to dangerously low levels, just 68%. She says she was told she had about a 20% chance of survival. My youngest baby is six years old. And so when you're told that and you have a six-year-old, you know, like, he's probably, if, if I die, he's not going to remember me. Janine is speaking out now because she wants people to know how much she regrets not getting the vaccine, a decision that nearly cost her her life. I was one of those people that was like, I can't believe people are just going to just inject their body with this medication. There's, we don't know enough about it. Now I'm just like, it is just a shot. Just get the stupid shot. That vaccine could have stopped all of this. Just one little shot. And I feel foolish that I didn't get it. I wish to God I would have got it. it could have said, it's not just about what it could have prevented me from experiencing physically in my life right now, but it could have saved my family so much heartache. My children from seeing me go through that. My husband and, you know, my siblings from seeing it. So you're full of regret. So much regret. Once again, that was a report from CNN um, just last month about the importance of getting vaccinated. This mother literally saying that, hey, what I experienced in this emergency room, you do not want to experience. Please get vaccinated. Please get your family vaccinated. That's what this mother is encouraging and urgently pleading with people to do right now. Don't, don't, as we are putting it, don't be a sitting duck. Don't just be waiting. Oh, let's see how things improve. Let's, let me look at the data. Let me go look at some misinformation on Facebook, which is literally happening right now. Please do not get your information from social media. Please trust factual, reliable, legitimate, credible journalistic sources. Please. Um, misinformation is killing people right now. It is absolutely devastating, but it is really happening. Misinformation related to the coronavirus and the vaccine. This will literally save your life. It has saved many lives across the country right now, but those who are unvaccinated, um, it really does create a, a, a terrible spot right now for nations across the country, who, which leads to surges in cases like this when we have more variants. Uh, so please, please get vaccinated. You are you are saving lives if you do. Um, once you are vaccinated, as the CDC does now recommend, please wear your mask if you're in a, a risk, uh, in a place where there is high risk or spread of COVID-19, because if you are fully vaccinated, you can spread de the Delta variant to someone who is unvaccinated. Uh, me personally, I don't know about you, but I do not want to be responsible for getting someone severely ill or killing them because of my ignorance. So please wear your mask while you're indoors if you're in a COVID-19 hotspot right now. Um, there are times during uh, this new mask reinstatement where I have forgotten my mask at sometimes. I will be honest about that because it is going to take a while to to rewire your brains back after being a fully vaccinated person with the CDC saying you can take your mask off now and having to put them back on. So just please be cautious of that. Um, please do. Please get vaccinated. You are saving lives. You're also giving your greatest appreciation and gratitude to our healthcare workers right now as they are grappling with this horrific, horrific surge in COVID-19 cases. All right, we'll be right back.
In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Welcome back. So earlier this week, we got the data from the 2020 census count. Um, This is reporting from USA Today. This is definitely a much more pluralistic and multiracial country than we have ever measured before. We had the only white population decline in uh, absolute numbers for the first time ever since the very first census back in 1790. The population of people who identify as only white in the United States, so that's not white in something else, but just white, shrank in absolute numbers. And we've never seen this in the history of the United States. The number of people who identified as multicultural jumped significantly from about 9 million or so in the last census in 2010 to over 33 million this time, a more than threefold increase. We also saw growth in demographic groups like, for example, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, who are a really diverse group of people coming from a lot of different cultures and are now becoming a bigger and bigger part of America. What we really saw in the numbers this time around, in fact, was that the growth in the American population is really coming from minorities and marginalized communities. And they're really driving the population increases in the United States, not just over the past decade, but presumably in years to come for this country as well. Another notable item from the census was that while the U.S. population is still growing, that growth is slowing down. So we saw, in fact, the slowest rate of growth since the 1930s, since the throes of the Great Depression in this country. That slower rate of growth has implications for a lot of things. Economically, for example, it potentially means fewer workers in the United States in years to come. So that's something that we're really going to see reverberate throughout American society. Once again, that was reporting from USA Today. You did hear her talk about um, that there was a essentially a decline in growth among the population here in the United States of America. Um, well, that definitely when you look at that, um, there is a lot to consider with that uh, because when we first got the earlier. Um, Essentially, the the earlier results of the census in January of this year, I believe that was earlier this year in January or March, when we got those results in, um, we did see a decline in the growth of the population. There is a lot to talk about among that because the Trump administration did interfere with the census repeatedly during its time, essentially wanting to change it and put put a new question on there to essentially intimidate immigrants here in the United States uh, for fear that essentially essentially, are you a citizen of the United States? Are you a legal citizen? That was essentially ruled illegal. They could not put that on there. And so the Trump administration, they repeatedly interfered with the census. Also, many other things, COVID-19, people not having the tech resources to fill out the census for last year. So definitely a lot to consider when you look at the decline in the growth population of the United States as a country overall. But we are becoming, we are a multiracial democracy. 
Um, we, we have seen significant growths among people who are Hispanic, also people who are of Asian American descent, excuse me, who are of Asian descent. Um, we also did see a decline for the very first time, as you heard there in the white population here in the United States. Um, according to the Houston Chronicle, quote, the study examined 100,000 adults in the United States who were registered as potential bone marrow donors and who, as part of their registration, had been asked how much they know about their ancestry and how they can and how they came to learn it. The Stanford researchers anal analyzed those responses and found that people who have taken the ancestry test are more likely to identify as multiracial. Still, that's highly unlikely to account on its own for the dramatic job drop in numbers. So we are seeing more people identify as multiracial here in the United States as we are becoming much more diverse as a nation. Um, also, I will say for the census, because we are because we have just gotten in this, every time we get the new census results, um, we do see this big political fight by Republicans to redistrict lots of areas, given the, the the diversity of that particular area, just to benefit specifically Republican voters. So redistricting. Um, a classic voter suppression tactic by Republicans is going to start happening, um, given that we are not only becoming a more diverse nation, but that there are large proportions of new Democratic voters across the country. All right, we got much more ahead to get to tonight. Stay with us. We'll be right back. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part on the home front on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. So his mother named his older brother David and then named him David also. So in order to prevent confusion among the two, they called both of the boys Ike. Uh, the older David was going to be called Big Ike and the younger David was going to be named Little Ike. After Little Ike graduated from high school, he got a job, but then he entered West Point, a U.S. military academy in New York. And then the Little just got dropped and he was simply called Ike. And that is how David Dwight D. Eisenhower got his famous nickname, Ike, which eventually became the feature of one of the most iconic political ads of all time. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We don't want John or, or Harry, let's do that big job right. Just get in step with the guy that's up. Americans to come to the aid of their country. See, doesn't it have a little catchy tune to it? 
So uh, during the 1952 presidential elections, Dwight D. Eisenhower essentially boosted his popularity when he visited Korea. History.com writes, quote, during the presidential campaign in 1952, Republican candidate Eisenhower was critical of the Truman administration's foreign policy, particularly its inability to bring an end to the conflict in Korea. President Truman challenged Eisenhower on October 25th to come up with an alternate policy. Eisenhower responded with the startling announcement that if he were elected, he would personally go to Korea himself firsthand to view the situation. Ultimately, Stevenson, his opponent in this race, would be clobbered in the general election and Eisenhower would win. Eisenhower geared up 442 electoral votes and Stevenson only got, make sure you're sitting down for this, 89. And so as far as the popular vote, more than 33 million people voted for Eisenhower and more than 27 million voted for Adlai Stevenson. So the election that year got pretty intense, especially on election night as the results began to come in. But the president, now president-elect Eisenhower had to fulfill his promise and go to Korea. And in the end, he did. He kept his promise and he went. Four years later, in 1956, there was another presidential election. The candidates were incumbent Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Democratic presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson. In that election, Eisenhower won. Ike won with 457 electoral votes and more than 35 million popular votes. Landslides back then were just absolutely incredulous. One of the major things he worked on in his presidency was infrastructure, especially in his second term, and it was already deteriorating by the time he got in office. Before Eisenhower ascended to the presidency, there were already some challenges to infrastructure. In the early 1930s, President Franklin D. Roosevelt acknowledged the urgency to construct an interstate system, and so it happened. In 1944, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944 permitted the the construction of a 40,000-mile national system of interstate highways. According to cake.com, the demands of World War II delayed the implantation of the plan, even as routes were laid out for the future highways. When Eisenhower got elected in 1952, it set the stage for vital infrastructural modifications. When Ike was a young army officer, he and other, as essentially they grappled, he and some of his other Colleagues in the army, they grappled with the difficulties of transporting army convoy vehicles around the nation. In 1954, as President Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed General Lucis D. Clay to form a committee to consider improvements on infrastructure, particularly on an interstate highway system, and the committee released a report. Uh, that committee report on infrastructure led to a bill. Uh, with a key phrase, quote, essential to the national interest, end quote. Here in the United States, and of course in other countries as also, infrastructure has always been essential to the national interest. That is why there was so much uh, exuberance when the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed earlier this week, and President Biden expressed that same exuberant sentiment. Major victory in Washington for President Biden, the Senate passing his trillion-dollar infrastructure plan with bipartisan support. 19 Republicans voting with Democrats today, but what does this bill face in the House? Rachel Scott on the Hill tonight. Tonight at the White House, President Biden touting a rare bipartisan deal after the Senate passed his $1.1 trillion infrastructure package. I want to thank a group of senators, Democrats and Republicans, for doing what they told me they would do. After years and years of infrastructure week, we're on the cusp of an infrastructure decade that I truly believe will transform America. 
The president says this bill will create millions of jobs. Experts believe the majority of the bill's benefits will flow to working families. Faster commutes, cleaner water, less expense, available and affordable internet. These are the things that working families need. The plan includes $550 billion in new spending, $110 billion for highways, bridges and repairs, $65 billion to expand broadband internet, and $39 billion on public transit. And the president saying he is keeping his promise of no new taxes on the middle class. We will not raise taxes by one cent on people making less than $400,000 a year. In a 50-50 Senate, today Vice President Kamala Harris presiding over that key vote. The yeas are 69, the nays are 30, the bill as amended is passed. 19 Republicans voting with Democrats, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Both sides calling the investment long overdue. We've been talking about infrastructure here for five or 10 years. I'm hoping we can uh, make it reality. The bill could face a bumpy road in the House, where some Democrats say they won't pass it unless the other part of Biden's agenda, a $3.5 trillion spending package, including health care, education and child care, is passed too. Can you get moderates in your own party behind that price tag? Well, I'm confident that we will be able uh, to do that. Would you be willing to come down at all? I think right now we're at 3.5. I think that's where we're going to stay. All right, Rachel, we all know the final number remains to be seen, but what's the White House saying tonight about the president's chances that they can get uh, both of these bills to the president's desk? Well, David, the president saying tonight that he is confident that his party can get this done. The White House says the president will be working the phones, reaching out to Democrats directly to get both of these measures across the finish line. But it could take months before both of those bills land on his desk, David. Rachel Scott following it all for us. Rachel, thank you. Once again, that was reporting from ABC News about this major infrastructure bill passing in the United States Senate. Also, the prospects and the future of this bill and also another bill in the United States House of Representatives in terms of passage and uh, official signature by the president making it officially law. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. Don't forget about our special report on this Tuesday, Tuesday, August 17th, 2021, about the climate crisis. Uh, that is a special report that you are not going to want to miss. It's going to be here. Here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I hope you and also perhaps invited guests that you bring on, invited people that you invite to go listen to that. They are listening to that uh, this Tuesday, once again, Tuesday, August 17th. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the show. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. And as always, uh, take care.